we are taking a stab at this new new methods of participatory design, critical digital infrastructure for collective impact. So again, this question of how might we more effectively mobilize knowledge, people, and capital using contemporary innovations in technology and finance and legal innovations to build better systems. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. Today, we are headed to a small village just outside of Carcassonne in the south of France to talk to Madeleine Martinier about her work in designing, activating, and scaling open innovation ecosystems for a more equitable and sustainable future. In our conversation, Madeline and I talk about the importance of finding community and belonging, what role technology can play in driving systemic change, and what it means to design an ideal world. I threw some pretty meaty questions at her, and as you'll see, Madeline responded with ease and super practical examples to show us systems thinking at work. Prochain arrêt, Carcassonne. On y va? first question that I love to ask everyone on the show, if we were to come to your ecosystem, which in this case is in the southeast of France, west, where, southwest, south, southwest of France, where would you take us? What is a day in the life of you in where you live? Oh, my gosh. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I live, I live in a tiny tiny village um, in the south of France. Uh, it's a vigneron village, so we're surrounded by grapevines everywhere. We are in one of two, uh, two, three towns that is the first wine cooperative in France, fun fact. And right now it is still a little chilly, it's still spring, but it is sunny outside, you can see behind me. And it's just starting to warm up. So uh, if you go out into the garden, which is where I would be taking this entire conversation if I could, it is starting to feel like spring. So we've got some flowers blooming and the bees are out and the butterflies are out um, and the cabbage moths are out. <laughs> so that's the end of my broccoli. And it's just it's really beautiful and delightful here right now. So this is one of my favorite times of year in the sleepy little town because everything's just starting to wake up. You are working for this kick-ass, let's solve global challenges, design thinking and systems design company out of a small village in the south of France. Yes. <laughs> Why? How? Shouldn't you be in New York or San Francisco or somewhere in Geneva, like stirring the big pot? I don't think so. I, there, so I, I lived in San Francisco before this. Um, I was there for a long time. I, I love being in big cities, but I like being in big cities even more when I don't live in them. We grapple with so much complexity every day that being in the midst of all of the, the, the fury that is city life is just exhausting. 
And so I, we, we made the decision, uh, my husband and I made the decision to move to Europe uh, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, and found this beautiful, beautiful house. And then the pandemic hit. And I have to say, it was probably the best place to be during a pandemic because we had a lot yeah. of freedom of movement. And I don't, I wouldn't have it any other way for, for the work that we do. There's something about being able to step out from behind the screen and, and from step out of these really difficult conversations at times and be able to be outside and be in a very different pace of life. Mm-hmm. And very, there's a certain presence that I think comes in these smaller, smaller villages and, and connectivity with your neighbors and everybody saying hello to each other and going to the local bar and having a drink together and gathering that is really grounding with all of the very philosophical and complexity that we, we deal with on a daily basis. Now, so many questions at once. Are you French? Are you American? Are you both? How are you surviving in the south of France? And how do you talk about systems design down at the bar in French after a long day of work? So I'm both. My father is French. My mother is American. Okay. Uh, the short answer is I don't. <laughs> <laughs> do you just tell them you grow flowers for a living and that's it? Pretty, uh, pretty much. I think I think our neighbors think that I am. Uh, well, I, I know for a fact that our neighbors think that I'm the crazy jam lady because when we first moved here, I gifted everyone with homemade jam, uh, and so wow. so that was my way of ingratiating us as the foreigners uh, mm-hmm. into the small town. So I am the crazy jam lady, and then and then uh, this year I was a crazy cookie lady. Um, so I I don't talk about it that much because I think that. It's difficult enough to explain what it is that we do in English. <laughs> yeah. And in, in French, I think particularly there's such a it's such a different cultural experience that people don't particularly understand it. But I feel like a lot of the uh, the kind of the ecosystem design brain space that I'm in it also translates to what we do in a day-to-day basis. And everybody has their little market gardens and there's this sharing of crop and abundance and and how do we live in naturally with oh, talking about talking about the fact that it's been a really dry winter and everybody's a little nervous because all of our wells are a little lower than they'd like to be. And so what are we going to plant this year with that in mind? What are we not going to plant this year with that in mind? So I I actually like having a little bit of distance in the conversations because I feel like I get to touch on some of the same concepts that I really like, but not have to watch people's just eyes glaze over. Like, you do what? (laughs) So we say, I do design work. Um, and I work from work from home, and they go, okay, that makes sense. It's good <laughs> enough. Yeah, good enough. How do you how do you connect with your peers? Do you ever travel to other cities to hang out with other zebras and and design thinkers? Where do you get that connection from? Travel definitely. I'll also say candidly, not as well as I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's been a really that's been a real challenge moving moving cross continents and cross oceans and, and pandemic times as well. Right. Um, yeah. this is part of the realities that we live in. Um, so I think we're in process right now. If I talked about my, my ecosystem in my house right now is full of packing boxes because we're actually moving to a slightly larger, slightly larger town for exactly that reason. So we have a little bit more going on and ability to connect with more folks, but pre pre pandemic, uh, it was travel. And going going to different cities, spending time with folks, being in community, uh, yeah. doing 
conferences, uh, which actually going to conferences to conference with people, be in community in that way. But I do feel like it's something that that I've lost a bit in this move and in the world that we live in now, because so much is is uh, so much is in front of a screen. Mm-hmm. So my my desire to be in deep community with folks over a screen is significantly less, um, and my desire to actually meet in person with people is significantly higher. But the people that I meet with personally, we talk about gardening, which I love, and I will talk about gardening. That's a whole podcast in of itself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's not quite the same connection. No, um, so I agree. I, I'm looking forward to doing a little bit more travel this year. This is very timely because I too am at a point right now where we're trying to decide whether to go to the slightly larger city or the really rural small town. Both of them certainly have their upsides. And I think the biggest fear I have is finding community now that we're coming out of the pandemic, hopefully being able to have enough density of good people, not just professionally, but like really finding the right kind of people that I can have that community again. So everything you describe hits home for me. I feel it. So I'm super excited to see how that move is shaken out for you and hopefully whether you'll be able to travel more this year, which will I will be say something that relates to that is, is and relates to the entire topic at hand is uh, so one of my favorite books, which I'll, I will make a nod to at the end as well, is a book from Peter Block um, called The Structure of Belonging. Um, yes. Community Strike. I reread that book at least once a year. <laughs> um, and so much so that I, I there's a, a board behind me. It's a cork board. Um, and I have quotes that I actually pulled down for this conversation to put on here. And part of why I'm referencing it is is there is – a lot of what what he talks about is like building community, like yeah. building space, and I think that there is there is this move towards, and and I think particularly in the way that the world has been uh, being tumultuous as it is, like we're looking to find community, and I don't think we're having enough conversations around well, what does it look like to build community in this new age? And so yeah. maybe it's not sitting on endless Zoom calls. But maybe it is actually designing the spaces that we want to be gathering together. So I'm going back to the U.S. and I happen to have a friend who has a guest house uh, in Nevada City. It was one of my favorite. I grew up there. It's up in the Sierra Nevadas. What does it look like to actually say bring people together in this time and space and have that moment together? And whether that's in person, if we're able to do that, or have a house that has a guest room and inviting people to come and stay we're building virtual spaces for us to just come and drink a glass of wine or have a coffee right? and have yeah. that regular cadence. I'm curious about that more and more on how we do that with technology. A friend of mine for her birthday did a, a watching party using some Netflix. Netflix allows you to watch a movie with somebody, with, with other people. And we had people from three different time zones. And she was watching a marathon of the Lord of the Rings movies. And it was so much fun because I was able to be there in space and we were able to chat about the movie and we were watching the same thing worlds apart. And there was that real sense of closeness. It was such a silly thing. I was like, oh, 
that is a way of building community and building that gathering space in a virtual way that's low lift, it's low pressure, and it creates that immediate connection. So I'm, I'm curious around how things shift more, at least personally, but also more broadly this year, that building of those spaces, both in person and virtual. I 100% agree. I too feel that desire. And I'm sure that a lot of people who listen to this feel that desire of just being more intentional about who we're spending time with and how we're spending that time and what are we going to say yes to and whatnot. I don't know if you've read The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, but I thought yes. that was also a very handy guide on how to be more intentional about creating really meaningful gatherings and meetings and conversations. <sighs> Great. And yes, I love Peter Block, so I can't wait to talk more about that. But before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you, since in this season, we're talking about the slow and complex nature of systemic change, I know you're deeply familiar with the frustrations and the patience that is required to do this work. I wanted to ask you, in a world of this very sort of linear short-term thinking that I think is super common, at least in the West right now. What is wrong with how we're trying to tackle these big problems? That's a meaty question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one no one better than to ask you. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, oh, there's so many different ways I want to take that. So there's two things that you, you, there's two different questions I feel that are in there. One is, around short-termism mm -hmm. uh, in the work that we do and tackling critical societal issues. And then the yeah. other is around linear thinking. And I, they're absolutely related, but I think they're different They're different concepts and different problems in their Great. own right. Um, part of the challenge that that we see in, in the work that we do at Amalaria is around, I think, this challenge of linear thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a particular one that is helpful to touch on. And we see this a lot in technology. You and I chatted about this previously, where as technology has, has evolved and matured in many respects, a lot of it is, is geared towards simplifying complexity. Mm -hmm. And there's a real challenge with that because we end up with kind of distilling these things down into, into base components, but we lose, we lose the, the interconnectedness. And so, so our desire, and I think it, it, it's grounded in a desire as a species, like we're trying to understand more than we probably can and should. Uh, but we're in that drive, we lose, we lose that connectivity and that relational aspects. And the challenge when you're dealing with wicked problems, right, which are in these complex, multifaceted, uh, societal and cultural and planet-sized problems yeah. is you can't distill them down to their base parts um, because they're, they're, everything is connected. So if you make a change in one part of the system, it is inevitably going to have follow-on effects. And if we're not thinking in that relational way, then we end up potentially causing more harm than we intend at the very worst and at the best not actually solving the problem we may be solving the the symptom but we're not actually solving the problem and, and this relates to the time piece as well because part of that is this work is the work of lifetimes mm -hmm. uh, and part of in in doing this kind of complexity thinking requires 
the time and space to be still and to listen, to really, really listen. And culturally, particularly Western culture, we're not very good at that. (laughs) And this is part of why I don't like living in cities anymore, right? Because it's constantly, there has to be input, constant input. And so whether it's input from your phone or it's input from, from relating to other people, it's that constant stimulus. Yeah. And you can't be in a space to really listen and without having that time and space. And we can't actually solve, begin to even unpack solving any of these complex issues if we're not in that space. And so I think that is... <laughs> That's one point <laughs> on a very large and complex question that I think we're we're missing, and it is extraordinarily problematic. In an ideal world, how would we go about solving big, wicked problems? You're liking the very big, big open-ended questions. Yes, uh, because I don't know the answers, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure you do. So I just get to ask you. I don't know the answers either. I don't, but a part of the point is I don't think any of us do. Um, I mean, how, what it looks like in a perfect world. Mm-hmm. But part of that is because each of my version of a perfect world and your version of a perfect world and and somebody's, somebody who is living in community in, you know, in a refugee settlement... Um, or in a fishing community, their perception of a perfect world are all very different, and that's okay. But there is no there is no one solution for for what we're trying to solve. And I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on a lot recently has been uh, and my my degree, which I never really used until fairly recently, is actually an arts and design degree. <laughs> Um, I never thought I was actually going to use it, and yet here we are. And part of the challenge that I've seen in in this space is for all of the advancements that we've seen in technology, that the design sector, particularly in social impact, is way behind. And so there's a lot of talk around participatory design. We're building mm-hmm. and building these these gathering spaces to do this kind of listening. And we're still perpetuating in a lot of the methodologies this, at times, colonial thinking. It's very extractive in a lot of ways, where we're going into the design, participatory design methodology, you go into a community, you do your deep listening, but you're going in with a hypothesis, Yeah. right? So that's your first problem. You're going into a community to be like, I, I think I know the problem that needs to be solved. So I'm going to go in and I'm immediately looking to this community to validate or invalidate my hypothesis, which is binary. It leaves no room for actually maybe maybe it was the wrong question yeah. in the first place. Um, and that was one of the Peter Block principles, right? Like we have to work, make sure that we're getting getting the questions right. And so that's the first problem. So we go in with assumptions about what, what, the, what the problem is. We're validating, we're invalidating those assumptions. And then we go back to our offices, to our teams, we take that, we digest it, and then we come up with a solution. Here's the solution that is going to solve the problem that may or may not be the problem. And we lose a lot of times the feedback loops between that. 
again, because there is this very narrow scope, there actually isn't the opportunity for the community to go, that actually wasn't the problem yeah. in the first place, right? And then we lose, I think, in that, we also lose the, the again, that relational aspect between people and place and community and nature in that because we're so focused on how do we change behavior mm-hmm. to solve that issue and not understanding the the context in which this is all happening. We did an event a couple a couple of weeks ago now on humanity-centered design. So we have a yeah. set of uh, design principles that we originally published in 2018 and we've recently re reissued them, augmented them and one of those was was uh, the one we just did was around humanity-centered design. And what does it look like to move from human-centered design to humanity-centered design? And it was a beautiful conversation, uh, some fantastic folks, and, and unpacking, Nate, like the concepts of time in this space um, and in this work, concepts of bringing love uh, and compassion into, into humanity-centered design and balancing the quantitative and the qualitative, a lot of similar juicy tidbits in that. I think in a perfect world, we need to find better ways to do participatory design um, with communities, not for communities, that balances both the needs, the needs and the experience of of those that are most impacted by the problems that we're trying to solve mm-hmm. and the experts. That, that may be bringing in outside experience that is valuable, but it does not mean that they are more special <laughs> or that that is necessarily that it's weighted differently than the folks who are expected to do the implementation or are going to be most most impacted and affected by what we're creating. I know folks will disagree with me on that. Um, <laughs> some will, but that's that's uh, uh, I feel very strongly about that. I just had a total light bulb moment. As I may have shared with you, I am starting to work with the Shenandoah Community Capital Fund in Virginia, and I was hired for my expertise in ecosystem building. And what I'm finding is I bring that expertise, but that community is just a community I don't know very well. So yes, I bring that, but for that to really bear fruit, I need to go in and have, do a lot of listening and have a lot of one-on-one conversations and get to know the community to even begin to be able to see how some of that expertise might be beneficial in that community and be really open to asking myself, what am I missing? What do I not know a lot about? And, and how differently could this look in a community that obviously is, you know, its own beautiful, unique, distinct culture and character and has its own challenges so thank you um you can send me an invoice for this coaching session (laughs) (laughs) i think that's super insightful hi friends i'm trying out something new for season three and i hope you'll join us on april 14 2022 i'll be hosting our first community conversation called burn both ends i want to invite you the listeners to help co-create this show and i would really love your input Burn Both Ends is going to be a conversation about the emotional and mental toll of driving social change in our communities. What does it mean to take care of ourselves? What's getting in the way? How can we mitigate the effects of long stretches of incremental progress? And when do we need to step away? What does a sustainable lifestyle mean for purpose-driven community champions? 
At Burn Both Ends, you are invited to share your personal experiences and help me phrase the big hard questions. In season three, I will set out to find us some answers. Come and co-create the next season of Ecosystems for Change. You'll find the link in the show notes. And now back to the show. Why do you think, Madeline, it is so hard for us as, you know, do-gooders and world changers to to take the time to listen, to stay humble, and I think on a greater scale, to think in complex adaptive systems? It's something that, you know, from gardening to cities, we're constantly surrounded by. I think this complexity is nothing new, and yet we seem to have a hard time thinking that way in our work and in our approach to solving problems. Why do you think that is? I think there's there's a couple of different things at play and 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 they are definitely at odds with each other. I feel like we have potentially as a as a as a species a, a grandized sense of of self and how much is within our locus of control. And that is really challenging because on one hand, uh, and social media has done a lot of damage to this, is we are, we have a sense that, that we, these, these kind of very instant gratification moments yeah. that we have throughout, throughout our days and throughout our lives that make us feel like we have more control than we actually do. On the other hand, and I think the last couple of years have been really, really evidenced this, I think we're beginning to realize that maybe we don't have as much control as we thought we did. Yeah. That there are too many things going on. There is too much complexity. And the challenge with that is most people's tendency is to just shut down. Right? We see, and we saw that a lot during the pandemic, saying we're beyond, beyond control. I'm going to stay in my, in my apartment and I'm going to learn how to make sourdough bread. I did yeah. not learn how to make sourdough bread. And, and, and focusing like that inward locus of control. And there's other folks who, who immediately went into solutioning and problem solving and seeing the opportunity and burnt themselves out in the process. So how do we balance that tension of recognizing that I, as an individual person on this planet, actually can't control that much? Yeah. Uh, I can only control my own behavior, my own actions, whether or not I recycle, <laughs> whether or not, you know, there are only certain things that I can do. And yet, how do you then transition people's thinking and mindset to one of collective impact and collective action? And I, just because I, as an individual person, only have so much inside my locus of control, me plus 10 people, me plus 100 people, me plus a million people, the impact becomes exponential. Uh, and that is a really difficult, I don't have an answer for that. That is, that is the, the, the answer that is the question that we grapple with I think every day at Amalaria. We're talking about building digital infrastructure for collective impact. How do we build the plumbing that supports that that kind of movement building yeah. and creating that 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 action that I again I individually couldn't do, I as an organization can't do, I as part of a government can't do, but together we actually might be able to mobilize the the necessary 
knowledge, people, and capital at the scale and speed necessary to create this seismic shift. That is a really difficult balance and tension. And I don't think any of us have quite cracked the nut on that. That is, again, it's a tension that we're, that I sit with certainly every day. Yeah. You just brought up Amelaria and I got to admit, you and I worked alongside each other for close to a year before I had a chance to sit down with you and be like, what do you guys actually do? Like, I can't wrap my head around the work of Amalaria. And I think it, it took about 30 minutes until <laughs> Penny started to drop. Can you shed a little bit more light on what it is that Amalaria does and how you guys go about doing that work? I can try. <laughs> I hope it's not it's not 30 minutes this time. Um, you know, so Amalaria is uh, is the mutualistic love child of two other Zebra companies, uh, Sfera and Uncompromise. And we uh, formed Amalaria last year after doing a bunch of work together and working in deep, deep partnership for, for many, many years and realizing that the work we were doing was better better together. And mm -hmm. how, what would it look like taking all of the learnings, particularly took a lot of learnings from, from Zebras Unite, like what does it look like to build a mutualistic structure that can invite participation from other parties. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we're still learning. Like, mutualism is hard. And so we formed Amalari as an ecosystem design lab. This entire topic today is very near and dear to, to my heart, obviously. We are taking a stab at this new, new methods of participatory design. Right? And so we're looking and we're building critical digital infrastructure for collective impact. So again, this question of how how might we more effectively mobilize knowledge, people, and capital using contemporary innovations in, in technology and finance and legal innovations uh, to build better systems? And so, you know, we we do a lot of a lot of work with partners and clients in this deep discovery phase. So folks come to us, they either have either have a technology that they've already built that they're looking to see how they might leverage for more, more exponential impact, or they have an idea about how technology might better serve their purpose and serve their stakeholders, but they haven't built anything yet. So we, we do a lot of deep discovery work. We do a lot of deep listening and interviews, both with, within the organizations and the communities that they're intending to serve, to understand right, if, if actually the problem is the problem mm -hmm. that folks are coming to. And overwhelmingly, the problem is not the problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? um, and that's okay. I, I'm really grateful that we are able to take that time with folks to actually to, to address that from the beginning. Uh, and what that allows us to do once we've done that deep listening, we do a lot of strategic alignment work with organizations to ensure that their values and their purpose, their culture, their strategy are all, all well aligned, which helps us get to know them better mm -hmm. in the process. Then we can begin to co-design and experiment together. Right? And this is where the lab, the lab language comes in is we get to design experiments with our partners that are going to get deployed in communities and see, see how things change over mm -hmm. time. 
So most of our partners that we work with, we have multi, multi-year relationships with, where we're, we're in deep community with them, with their, with their partners and stakeholders. We sometimes step in even more operationally if we need to, to help, help support and move things forward. And we can go and execute on these experiments and then build in those feedback loops. So how are we ensuring that we're constantly getting feedback from the community and augmenting or adjusting our trajectory from there? And all of it is based on, is with this fundamental belief of how do we, and how do we bring more stakeholders, more participants in? So we do a lot of work with integrating third parties. Mm-hmm. Right, so on a technology side, that's working with APIs um, and, and starting to dip our toes into distributed and decentralized technology and all that that entails. And then more broadly, helping foster relationships and partnerships with aligned organizations that can help them better achieve achieve their impact together. It's a balance of, of technology, but technology in service to what? Um, so we spend a lot of time in the in the question of in service to what, and then and then we de- and then we define and design the technology from there. In principle, I can follow your approach of customer discovery, if you will, deep listening, designing experiments, iterating along the way. In practice, however, because humans are involved, that sounds incredibly difficult. It sounds like it's going to take so much of you to navigate different people and their opinions and feedback. I mean, you are in the weeds of helping people ask the right questions, shift their mindset, be open to not necessarily criticism, but feedback of how things might be done differently, which I imagine isn't always easy. What are some of the hardest things you encounter in doing that work? <laughs> oh boy. Um, and there's two, two things. One is, uh, is really difficult being the charismatic founder in this space. Mm. Right? Like people, and we all experience this, right? We have a great idea. We want to do good. And it is really hard to hear that, your assumptions about what is necessary, what is needed, and your approach may not be the best path forward. Uh, that is difficult for folks. Um, and you know, one of the lines that we we use a lot with folks uh, coming in is we ask the question, would you, rather, would you rather be the one to do it or would you rather see it done? And it is a hard question for people. Yeah. I because because they uh, a lot of folks sit, sit squarely in between, mm-hmm. right? Where they they want to see it done, but they really want to be the one to do it. Yeah, there's a lot of like uh, emotional and mental processing that comes in this um, that that we have to hold space for because it, it requires people to think really deeply about the impact that they want to create uh, and whether they're willing to have their fundamental assumptions challenged. And when, when it works, it works, all right? So we, we worked with an organization a couple of years ago and we continue to work with where we, we did, did this discovery work. 
We did the strategic design work with them. And one of the things that emerged out of that was they fundamentally needed to change their organizational structure. And everybody changed roles. It was all magical. It was all the the musical chairs, right? They fundamentally changed the structure of the organization, which is hard to do. Like It's not an easy process, uh, change management process to do that. And they did it because to them, the purpose of what they were trying to achieve for their community was far greater than any roles or titles or descriptions that they had about themselves. They're like, no, they matter more. So if my role needs to change to be in service to that, then great, let's do it. Zebras Unite is another great example. We worked with Zebras Unite and part of what emerged out of that was the need to to form a cooperative. Yeah. And now they have this hybrid structure and boy, oh boy, has that been a learning experience of what does it mean to build both the mutualistic structure and then what does it mean to operationalize that in a way that, that you know, in building a leader full organization. That's hard to do. And technology can be in service to that, but it isn't the solution to that. Um, so it's a lot of process and protocol definition. That's a really hard thing for folks to sit with. And, and I think the other looping back to the beginning is time. Like, I think we're used to in this work, particularly when technology is involved, we're used to quick fixes. And so just because we can do it fast doesn't mean we should. <laughs> particularly when it comes to building off of technology, we have to do a lot of realignment of expectations saying actually slower is better here so that we can build in the appropriate feedback loops so we're going to do some we're going to do some iterations and cycles we're going to do it with you and with your team to help you understand what it is we're doing and we're going to support you and bringing it out to the community and giving feedback getting feedback for them then we're going to have a conversation about it and we're going to see how how on on the ball or not we were <laughs> yeah and then, and then we design it, and then we get to feedback. All of this happens before anyone writes a line of code. And it's definitely hard for folks to go, but but I really want to do it. And I really want to do it now, including for, for technical folks that we work with. Like we work with some spectacular engineers. And that's really hard for them too, because they're like, well, we can just build it. We can build it over a weekend. And I'm like, I know you can. <laughs> I have no doubt in your ability to build it and build it well. But if you build something well and it doesn't actually solve the problem doesn't matter. Um, and that's, that's, that's the other tension to sit with uh, for, for everybody, both with our partners and internally. We could end here, and I already have learned <laughs> so much more than this was so insightful. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you. I know you guys have been doing, you do work globally, and I know specifically you've been doing some work in Mexico. Could you tell us about how that came to be briefly? And then how you move through that so we could see your approach at work? So we've been working um, really for the last three, four years now, I think, with a fantastic organization in Mexico, a 22-year-old ocean conservation nonprofit. Uh, they're focused on uh, supporting fishers um, in in their their transition to more sustainable fishing practices. They are a fantastic team, um, growing team. And they had, when they came to us, had developed an application that was supporting, it's a digital logbook. So, so fishers 
in, in Mexico, after they have gone out to sea, they have caught their catch, they are legally required to report on that catch um, and in regular intervals. And most of the reporting and the logging of the catch that's happening when they come back is pen and paper. And so, so then they go back and then they get a laptop, they type it in and around and around it goes. And so, so they had, a, had developed a minimum viable prototype of a digital logbook that fishers could use to record their catch um, and start to do some, some pattern recognition and, and with some of the data over time and saying, hmm, you know, this area that I used to fish in actually is not serving so well. Um, I used to always have abundant, abundant catch here and I'm not doing, I'm not getting that anymore. And using that as, as, uh, to start making some observations and, uh, around changes in, in fishing zones. And one of the things that they, they recognized really quickly as an organization is that the sustainable fishing and, and ocean conservation is by itself a wicked problem. And it is connected to a whole bunch of, a whole host of other wicked problems, such as economic development and gender equality and climate change. <laughs> yeah. And so, so if you want to support sustainable fishing, and uh, the entire livelihood of the fishing industry could be completely decimated by climate change. Uh, and it is. So as an organization, what are your options? Either you fundamentally shift the business to focus on climate change or figure out a way to participate in a larger discussion and a larger ecosystem and bring some of the knowledge knowledge and capital right, from that space into the ecosystem. And then how do you bring fishers more deeply into the conversation around climate change in a way that is more equitable? There ends up being a lot of climate change research that is done with fishers and it is, it is at times extraordinarily extractive, where they come onto the boats at expense to the fishers. Um, they lose, lose a body on the boat to fish. Uh, they go, you know, researcher comes back, they write their big report, they get grant funding, and that fisher is not recognized in any way for the work that they have put in to whatever solution that has just been proposed, <laughs> looping back to the beginning, with their participation. We worked with them and did some strategic design work with them and recognized that for that ecosystem approach, that this application that I built is, is the thin end of the wedge. It's the ability for them to connect with a large amount of fishers. And, and so they set a very audacious goal um, to reach all the fishers in Mexico with this application um, and then expand out into broader Latin America. And they've been growing steadily but surely um, and expanding out of Mexico. And the over time, we, we fundamentally rebuilt the application <laughs> um, and built it with more stability and security in mind, but also more utility. Right? So, so over time, the fishers could not only track their, their logs, but have access to reference guide. They now have an on a marketplace. They can have discussions with other fishers. Mm -hmm. They have an ability to share share solutions with each other uh, that they are they're finding and discovering in community. And it's been and then we've built an entire other suite of work uh, for fishing cooperative administrators. So one of the recognitions that we had 
was one fisher at a time is never going to scale fast enough. And most mm -hmm. fishers in Mexico are still they're part of some sort of cooperative. Cooperatives not in the sense that I think you and I are familiar with, but are still part of our production cooperatives. And so being able to support them in keeping track of their co-op and what people are fishing and making sure that it's that it is adherent to the quotas that are on their permits. Yeah. And what we've been able to do recently out of this, which is really beautiful, is now we're starting to be able to do pattern recognition. And we're able to start showing fishers and cooperatives how the decisions that they're making about whether or not they have fishing permits, whether or not they go through the effort of getting sustainability certificates for their fish, um, how that directly relates to the sustainable development goals, to FAO guidelines, to these very large and lofty yeah. and audacious goals, which are largely inaccessible to, to people in community, they can start seeing that. Um, and over time, they can see how that changes. Um, and so things like working and supporting supporting women in your cooperative and expanding the amount of women that are that are in the value chain, what does that do for your participation in in supporting gender equality? This is not fast work, but it's behavior change work. It's education work. Um, and it's all still grounded in in the value the value being held at the level of the fisher and the fishing cooperative, that they they hold the value. And so so looking at how do we continue to evolve what is now now expanded into this kind of multi-stakeholder initiative yeah. where where they are always at the center, they have the agency and choice over time that as organizations come and say, having this data would be really useful um, for our research initiative or for our organization or our government, what have you, that it is the decision of the fisher to be able to say, I give my consent to that data being shared. And over time, that any value that is generated by that data, that still comes back to the fisher. That is the hardest thing. That is the thing that we still, we're still working through and why, why we're so curious about and, and, and kind of excited about what's happening on the, in the distributed technology space and what, what's possible there is the ability to, to do provenance at that level and be able to ensure that the value that value that is being generated by the fishers is appropriately recognized and compensated back into community. Um, so that's the next the next piece that we are figuring out in this multi-year deep partnership with these folks. That's going to be season 25, the world as it should be. <laughs> and we can report back on how, how this all turned out. Thank you so much, Madeline. Um, you deal with wicked problems every day, sustainable development goals, climate change, loss of biodiversity, so on and so forth. How do you sleep at night? How do you not get completely overwhelmed by the magnitude of what you're trying to solve? Uh, I don't sleep very well these days, um, but that's, that's something I need to solve. I find enormous satisfaction and restfulness and peacefulness uh, in spending time in the garden mm -hmm. and playing in the dirt. 
And there's something in, in the complexity of it all, there's something really satisfying about being able to have that tangible thing at the end, right? Yeah. Like I love talking about the work in Mexico because there's an application. I can actually see it and I can see it working. It's like, great. It takes a lot for us to get to that place yeah. <laughs> to be able to see that. Um, and then at a certain point, a lot of the changes are really minuscule, but I can go into my garden in the morning and I, I go and I feed the chickens and I take the dogs for a walk and I can spend 20 minutes weeding and I can see what I've done. Yeah. say, great, I can check that off. And I actually have that visual marker that I have completed something. And that is like, the biggest thing that I've needed for self-care. Yeah. I have that completeness at the end um, that I find really soothing. Absolutely. <laughs> As a balance between, yeah. the, between the spaces. I, yes, I think weeding is excellent for all of these, uh, all of us digital professional workers who just stare at screens all day and having that sense yeah. of accomplishment from a clean patch in your yard is can be very important on certain days. Um, Madeline, so one topic that keeps like coming up throughout this conversation, throughout our work, and that's why the season's dedicated to it, is that this takes such a long time. And at times, like you said, the changes are minuscule. You may not even see the effects of what you did today until a year from now. How do you stay in the game? What do you tell yourself? What needs to be in place for you to continue going when you have a long stretch of where nothing happens visibly? How do you stay engaged? Hmm. A couple of things. One is uh, Amalari is growing. Amalari was, was named after is the, is the largest living organism on planet Earth. It's a fungal fungal network. And our team continues to grow. I find that really, really satisfying and really fulfilling to know that I'm not alone. And so being able to watch people grow and thrive, feel fulfilled in the work that they're doing is enormously satisfying for me um, to be able to see that on a day-to-day -day basis and know that that I have a small a small part to play in that. Related is is, is similarly as being being in in community. Right? It's why why I'm really hungry to be back in community because it's not just about the team capital T right is that we are all all of us that are doing this work are a team like we have we are figuring this stuff out together being in a community in that way mm -hmm. um, with other practitioners is also really helpful i love the deep listening and i've learned over time to to sit with my discomfort <laughs> to to sit with my privilege i'm still still doing that and to be able to be in a space of just listening mm -hmm. um, and be able to be excited in that space and be excited and empathetic and not have to have an opinion in that moment. I will have an opinion at some point, but just to be, to take a moment and be in somebody else's experience and yeah. listen to their story is really grounding. Um, and it's, it's, again, it's a hard muscle to learn, to just be in that space and be in that experience. Uh, and, and it is, I think when, when you learn how to do that, It is really gratifying um, and really exciting to be able to see the world differently in that moment 
And I, I think that every time I have one of those conversations, I change a little bit, like something in me changes a little bit. Um, and, and so that's, that is another piece that I feel is grounding in, in this work and recognizing that, that in just doing this work, that I am never the same any day. What a wonderful note to almost finish on. So thank you. I felt myself exhale as you were talking of, oh, okay, this is how we can do this. This is how embracing change and adaptation becomes a little less scary and actually shows the beauty of what that can mean for us as society, as culture, as humanity. Madeline, before we get to the rapid fire round, I just want to make sure everybody knows where to find you. People can connect with you at armillaria.io, and I'm going to make sure I put all of this in the show notes. You guys have been hosting some incredible Crowdcast events around designing ecosystems in a more humane or humanity-focused way, being equitable in your efforts. And I have a sense that there are a few more coming up. Is that right? There is, yes. Um, so we are partway through a 10-part series of our design principles for systems change. So our next one on March 23rd is on our design principle cooperative, um, which is near and dear to uh, to, to the zebras uh, in the audience uh, with some fantastic folks. So Stuart Fulton from Kobe, working in Mexico with Fishers, Ania Williams um, from Zebras Unite, and uh, Tara Chavlowski. I promise you I am saying her last name horribly. <laughs> Um, uh, who's a CEO at Technovation um, are going to be our speakers. It's going to be a fantastic event. So um, I look forward to seeing some folks there. Fantastic. Um, I'll make sure I put the link in the show notes. Hopefully this episode will be out in time to promote this. And I will put it in my newsletter so people know where to find it. And then, of course, they can connect with you on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and just see what else you are up to and what you're working on. All right, rapid fire round. I have three questions for you where I start the sentence and you get to finish it. Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'm going to be. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, systems thinking is? I would say systems thinking is a way of grappling with complexity, not simplifying complexity, um, and a method for more effectively seeing and sensing the world as something more beautiful and interconnected than just the sum of its parts. Secondly, a systems thinker that everybody should know about. Roxanne Safford um, is uh, one of my favorite humans um, uh, who spoke with us on the humanity-centered uh, design. Um, she has worn many, many hats And if you can get her on your podcast, please, please do. Um, and brings brings a, a wealth of, of experience from working with Second Muse and working with Night Lenfest, gorgeous system thinker, and will come armed with all of the most beautiful quotes. <laughs> um, so for, for all the listeners to have their, have their pen out. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Lastly, one resource that influenced you that you would recommend for other systems thinkers? Definitely the Peter Block book. Um, so Community, Structure, and Belonging. Um, I also say it was a recent one that, that I haven't quite completed yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by. Uh, it's another book called Designs for the Pluriverse, uh, Radical Inter Interdependence, Autonomy, and the Making of Worlds um, by Arturo Escobar. 
It is it's an academic book, um, so it's very dense, but it is particularly focused on and the the remaking of design methodologies and the unwinding of the the Western lens on the the world of participatory design. Um, so I have been digesting that and sitting with that, uh, and it's a phenomenal book. And it sounds like a great follow-on from today's conversation. Well, I hope everybody will connect with you and dive into your world and get a slightly better sense for how thinking in complex adaptive systems makes us better change makers and people who want to make a difference. Madeline, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Thanks so much, Annika. Be sure to find out more about Madeline's work at amalaria.io and connect with her on Twitter and LinkedIn. I pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, the Tuscarora, Shikori, Saponi, Okanichi, Lambi and Ino people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellowhouse Media. 